Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Good morning. We are so excited to start a brand new series here in the month of June. Everybody say the story of the kingdom. Come on, do it better than that. Say the story of the kingdom. I want you to say the subtitle with me. Say already, but not yet. It's so good to have you. My name is Pastor Craig, and I haven't had a chance to meet you. Just thank you so much for being here. What a privilege it is to pastor this wonderful community. Uh, I just was reflecting again this week at the beauty of what God's doing in our midst, and um, you know what makes me so excited is the light of God that's in each of your lives is such a wonderful, uh, just privilege, because it teaches me more each week about who he is, and uh, to interact and exchange our lives and to see what God's doing is just such a privilege and honor, and uh, so good to have our Brazilian friends here today. Uh, yeah, so I pastored this young lady in Cleveland, and so obrigada, obrigada por estar aqui, and nos chamamos, we love you. Thank you for being here. Nos chamamos. And so, y'all didn't know I knew a little bit of Portuguese. I know no Spanish, Michelle. I'm sorry. But uh, it is good to have you here. And uh, really, really excited you're with us uh, for the beginning of this brand new series, again called The Story of the Kingdom. I will let you know uh, if you are a version person, you have a, the Bible app on your phone, you can open that up and click in the top left corner and hit events, and you'll see the message pop up right in front of you. Just find Dwelling Place Church. And all of the scriptures will be right there in front of you and all of the main points that you'll receive from this message. And it's just a way to serve you and help you as you take notes um, through what God is going to speak to us today. I'm really, really uh, excited. I want you to bear with me if my voice gets a little weak. I have, uh, I've been preaching uh, five times this week uh, while I was find myself at a youth camp. And so I kind of preached my guts out for a few days. And uh, my, my voice um, is kind of waning, but nonetheless, the Lord will help us. And if you believe that, just say amen with me. I want to talk to you today at the beginning of this message in a way that kind of describes or sets up this series. And then I want to talk to you about a subject that is very personal, very, very personal to me. The most powerful things in the world today are in terms of shaping the way we humans think about life and make decisions are stories. And those of us maybe in the room who are trained as lawyers, sometimes we think that arguments and persuasion are the things that drive people's behaviors. But argument and persuasion can only go so far. There's accountants, engineers, finance folks. If you're one of those groups, you, you, you kind of get to the understanding that they've deceived themselves into thinking that, that people are driven by data, that our nation is driven by numbers and facts. But data and numbers only take us so far. Marketing people think that the world is driven by lust or by desire or by greed or fear of missing out on some pleasure. But desire, lust, and fear only take us so far. Do you know what shapes our culture more than anything else? It's the people who have the ability to weave together compelling stories. It changes really the history of nations. I'm going to prove it to you in just a moment. Do we have the capacity to weave together stories? Stories that provide essentially a whole framework of meaning. It's the people who weave together compelling stories that have the greatest influence on our thinking and on our behavior. That's, good. That's for the good or for the ill. The storytellers shape the world. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Well, I think of the really wicked story that Adolf Hitler told. What did Adolf Hitler say? Hitler, as you know, couldn't reconcile himself to the fact that Germany lost the First World War unless he stabbed in the back by some traitors. They were stabbed in the back by some traitors. So the obvious scapegoat to being stabbed in the back was the ones um, that was this international Jewish conspiracy of bankers and industrialists. So 
Hitler then borrowed what we call the pseudoscience of the day that was popular in racial classifications and superiority. And he said that it was the will of God for the Aryan race to get rid of all the Slavs, to get rid of all the Mediterranean peoples, to get rid of all the Asians. And God, by design, had called Germany to destroy all the Jews. And he started telling this story. You say, was that story powerful? Um, It was so powerful One story was directly responsible for the death of 60 million people in World War II. Now, if we don't think stories are powerful, we need to open our eyes again. One story with fervency and passion kills 60 million. What do you think the story of the kingdom of God should do to the earth? The story of the kingdom. Now, notice the subtitle is already, but not yet. I need to show you what Jesus calls the mystery of the kingdom. Now, the word kingdom of God in the scriptures occurs 162 times. Now, if you'll read through over this series in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven appears 34 times. Please understand kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the exact same thing. The reason that Matthew could not read kingdom of God is because he's writing to Jews who had restrictions on the name of God. They didn't say Yahweh. They didn't write Yahweh. They didn't say God. So he changes it for the Jewish audience to say kingdom of heaven. Still, Jesus, most scholars tell us, would use the word kingdom of God. When he came to the earth, he talked about the kingdom. But every good story has four main elements. Every one of them. Little Red Riding Hood. You could call it Prince Charming. And these are the four elements. Where do we come from? Who are we? What's wrong? And how will we be rescued? That's the the essence of a storyteller. Where do we come from? We come from God. The most powerful seven words in the Hebrew language are the first seven of Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where we come from. Who are we? We're image bearers of God. Some of us are pastors. Some of us are bankers. Some of us are stay-at-home mom. But fundamentally, we are image bearers of God. What's wrong? We have sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore we are estranged from God. Who will, how will we be rescued? A Messiah will come. His name will be Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the story of the kingdom. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is talk about elements of the kingdom. Now, I want you to go back to that slide again. Everybody say, already, but not yet. Now, I want to speak to you about that. What does that mean? Well, in one sense, the kingdom is already here, but the kingdom is not yet fully consummated. This is all throughout the scripture. I want to give you a couple examples. I can't give you many, but I'll give you one. Look at this next verse. And you're going to see how how the scripture says, go to the next verse uh, in Matthew real quick. I want you to see in this, or Luke 17. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. If you read the NIV translation, it says the kingdom of God is within you. It's a terrible translation because the kingdom of God was not in the Pharisees. The kingdom of God was in their midst, but they rejected the kingdom, okay? The kingdom of God is in your midst, so the kingdom is already here. Everybody say, the kingdom's here. With Jesus' birth, the kingdom was inaugurated, right? We see the kingdom comes, but there is this element in which the kingdom has not yet come. I don't want you to see this next one. Go to the next verse. Luke 19, 11, 12. Well, they were listening to this. He went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was gonna appear at once. So what does he said? A man of noble birth telling a parable went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. What's he saying? The king is, kingdom is not gonna come in visible signs right now. They're wanting Rome to be overturned. They're wanting Jesus to set up the earthly kingdom and they're confused that the kingdom has started but it's not yet fully been consummated. Folks, this, this is called the mystery of the kingdom, and this caused so much confusion in the scripture. This is what caused confusion for Pilate when he said, dude, just tell me who you are. Well, what about Matthew 11 when John the Baptist is in prison? He saw Jesus and the spirit, the dove fall on his head, and the heavens open and God speak, and yet he sends his disciples to say, Jesus, are you the one? Are you serious, John the Baptist? Or is there coming another one? Why? Because he was not seeing Rome be overturned. The kingdom was already here, but not yet. The kingdom had started, but it had not yet fully been consummated. You'll see a couple other scriptures. Go to the next one real quick. I want you to just see a few more because this kind of sets up our our, our, uh, our understanding, Hebrews 2, he said that God put everything in subjection under Jesus' feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we don't yet see everything in subjecting, or subjecting to him. Everybody say, not yet. not yet. 
But look what we already do see. But we see him, what? Crowned with glory and honor. See, it's here, but it's not here. It's now, but then it's in the future. I'm gonna show you one more and then we'll continue on. Look at this next verse. As we're just building this case, beloved, we are God's children when? Now, now. And what we will be, there it is, already but not yet. What we will be has not yet appeared. Notice that, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Everybody say already, but not yet. And what I want to talk to you today is about the holiness in his kingdom. In fact, that's the title of this message, Holiness in His Kingdom. I want to read a few texts, and I want to read one long story from the book of Numbers, and uh, just go ahead and preface it. This is a very personal subject to me, and so uh, if I get a little riled up, we'll just chalk it up to the Holy Spirit, all right? Uh, when I tell you to go to the book of Numbers, I was telling our, our class the other night in, in growth phases, you got to be rowdy to even gauge the book of Numbers, okay? Anything left of about Psalms is just crazy, right? It's difficult, but we're going to try to engage this subject tonight, and, uh, or this morning, I should say. See, I don't even know what day it is. I've been preaching tonight for the last five nights. But it's a very personal subject for me, and I want you to read two texts, and then we're going to read a long story. Psalm 29, verse 2 is where we're going to begin, and then read Isaiah 53 in verse 2. Notice what the Scripture says. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Notice this. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Everybody say that. Beauty of holiness. Interesting. We are to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, Isaiah 53 and 2. This same refrain, of course, is seen in Isaiah 96, but listen to this passage about the prophecy of Jesus Christ. This is speaking 550 years before our Savior would be born of a virgin under the law to redeem those under the law. And notice what the Scripture said. Who has believed our report? In other words, who is going to believe that the Messiah is coming? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice this. Oh, goodness, don't miss this. For he, Jesus, shall grow up before him. The Father is a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. Comeliness just means majesty or beauty. And when we see this, Jesus, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Paul's. Think about the way in which these notes clash with each other. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, and yet Jesus has no beauty. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, and Jesus has no comeliness or beauty that would attract us to him. Nothing about Jesus, Isaiah says, is attractive. And yet we are to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, I think in our traditions, in particular, I don't want to throw my experience on you, but I want to speak just for a few moments because this is so deeply personal. I've been wondering and waiting for months to share with you the message I'm going to share today. In our tradition and in our kind of understanding, I'm speaking of, for most of us, Western Christianity, we've made two major mistakes when it comes to talking about holiness. Maybe you could call it the same mistake with two sides of the coin, but it's two major mistakes. What are you saying, Craig? We've thought about holiness is when we talk about it as it relates to us human beings. We've thought about it primarily in terms of sinlessness rather than Christ-likeness. When we think of holiness in relation to humanity, we think of humanity being sinless. That's how we describe consciously, subconsciously in our minds what it means to be holy. And let me tell you something from the outset. That is a disastrous mistake. This is entirely a failure on our part. To think of holiness as only sinlessness is to misunderstand holiness altogether. And one of the ways we understand this and see this is because Paul himself, who we know wrote 13 out of 27 New Testament books, before his encounter with Jesus. I'm talking about before he encountered the truth. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the law. But before he encountered grace and truth... The Bible says in Philippians 3 and 6 that he was blameless concerning the law. That means he was, I know it's shocking, but as shocking as this can be, hear it. Sinlessness, depending on how you define it, is possible apart from Jesus in this sense. Blameless, Paul said, according to the law, what? I was sinless. Oh yeah, we know this. Read history. People go into deserts and live for 
hundreds of years. They become, this is how monasteries were started. So what is he saying, Craig? He's saying, considering the law, what I find in Jesus is not a way to be sinless. What I find in Jesus is a way to be the true creature he created me to be. So holiness, in this sense, is not just being separate from sin. It's not just being sinless. It's being Christ-like, okay? It's having the imprint of Jesus Christ as your life. So sinlessness, Paul's saying, did not bring that purpose to pass for him. Now, when we strive to live a holy life, it's not just to be sinless, but to be like Jesus, why? Because Jesus is the one who fulfills our purpose and in whom we fulfill our purpose in the world. Now, the goal of the work of the Spirit in your life, and I want to say this very clearly, is for you not to, it's not for you just to overcome sin full stop, although God, without a doubt, wants you to overcome sin. Because you can overcome the sin, depending on how you define it, on your own steam, for your own purpose, and that leads to the great sin that Jesus exposes called pride. So therefore, you really don't overcome sin, but you think you overcome sin, and then you find yourself in a position of pride, which is the great sin. So God's will is not for you just to be sinless. It's to be Christ-like. You need to track with me for a few minutes, okay? That pride is a sin only in the fact that you have a greater calling than sinlessness. And that calling is for Meredith, is for, for Rachel, for Sarah to be everything God created me and you to be, which is to be like Christ. So the first make we, mistake we've made when we, when we define holiness as sinlessness. Now, the second one is when we've defined God's holiness as God's otherness. Go back to that slide. Follow with me, follow with me today. God's holiness as otherness. In other words, being distinct from us. In other words, what makes God God in distinction from us is that he's separate from us. When in reality, God's holiness is not that he's other than us. It's not that he has pulled back from us. It's that God has the ability to be with us without him ceasing to be God or us ceasing to be creatures. That's true holiness, and I'm going to show you this in Scripture. You say, Craig, where do you see this? Isaiah 12 and 6, look what the Bible says. We rejoice for the Lord God is the Holy One in our midst. You see that? God's holiness is not that he's outside of us. It's God's holiness is that he has the ability to be with us and yet not contaminated by us. That's God's holiness. He can be in the midst of us. Now, He's only able to be in our midst because he is holy. And so much of the time we talk about holiness as what repels God from us. How many of you grew up in church and you heard someone say year after year, the father couldn't look at Jesus on the cross because a holy God can't abide with sin. Well, that's not the God of the gospel. That's not the God of the gospel. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Well, the God of the gospel is not repelled by sin. The God of the gospel comes after sin. He comes to a sinful world. The God of the gospel is he's able to be holy in the midst of sin. When we see Jesus in flesh, which is God in flesh, he's not repelled by sin. He's not repelled by sinners. Jesus doesn't recoil from sin. Jesus doesn't recoil from sinners. No, even from sinners like the Pharisees, whose only sin is to have pride in their sinlessness. He's still not recoiled. So Jesus is not recoiled. And I would defy you to find me an example in Scripture where Jesus is recoiled from anyone, anywhere, at any time. Never is he recoiled from anybody. You know what that means? If you and I recoil from someone to that degree, we are not yet like Jesus. If we pull back from sinners, we're not like Jesus. Notice that. I want you to get that down in your heart. But if you make this mistake, which is high, I believe is very widespread, holiness in my life is about my sinlessness, and holiness in God is about God's otherness, you start to think your calling in life is to never come into contact with anyone who's going to threaten your purity. That's what you think your calling is. So we create Christian subcultures, and we get out of our culture, and they're designed to kind of insulate us from having to interact with people who would threaten our sanctity. We don't want to hear people who make bad comments. We don't want to watch movies that make bad comments. And please follow me for a minute. We don't want to, we don't want to hear songs that would pollute our sanctity, so to speak, and, and, and we don't want to make friends with people who are way wicked because we got to stay clean. And let me tell you, folks, that's the heart of self-righteousness, not the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Are you still with me for a minute? Churches 
My church, I, I just say from my church, well, I got born again at 16. My church was fastened with the idea that holiness was sinlessness. So the pastor spent all of his time insisting that we avoid sinners. So we homeschool, we homeschool, I'm not throwing down homeschool, or we create private schools to insulate ourselves and our families from anyone that would contaminate us, okay? We pull back from the culture, okay? And we do this most of the year, right? And if we work jobs as Christians, we work only at Chick-fil-A or another Christian employer, okay? We pull back from anybody who would contaminate us. Now, 48 weeks of the year, the pastor would get up and say, don't you talk with sinners, don't you associate with sinners, don't you hang out in movies with sinners, don't even associate with Christians who know sinners. And they would often quote this passage like, evil communication corrupts good manners, right? If you're around people who smoke, drink, and, and cuss, it won't be long before you smoke, drink, and cuss. And we all know those are the only grievous sins against God, right? But about four weeks in a year, he got a different tune. The pastor would get up and he'd say, we got revival next week. It was always the weeks leading up to fall revival and spring revival. And a new tune would come out of his mouth. Oh, well, we got spring revival coming, fall revival's coming in a new few weeks. And what we want you to do is go get all your unsafe friends, call them up, hand out the invites, and ask them to come and join us. I don't have any unsafe friends, Pastor. I don't even have any friends who have unsafe friends. You've told me for 48 weeks to not associate with any sinners. But think about that for a moment. If holiness is about my sinlessness, if God's holiness is about God being repelled by sin, that it's impossible to understand the incarnation. You can't understand Christmas. Impossible. You're saying, Craig, how do you make sense of a life that God, in God form, is coming down to us to be in the midst of us and buy us back to himself. If God is repelled by sin, how do you explain December 25th? If God hates coming to overcome sin, how do you explain Jesus? Let me ask you another question. How do you explain people who literally are touching Jesus that everybody else is scandalized and Jesus is understanding and look at the woman who he welcomes perfume paid by prostitution and he looks at people in their own lawlessness or law keeping and says, she understands and you don't understand. If you think that holiness is your sinlessness and God's holiness is his otherness, how do you make sense of Matthew 21, 31 when he looks at sinless people around him and says tax collectors and prostitutes will come into the kingdom before you do? That's what Jesus said. They'll come in before you do in your sinlessness. Now, if you're still with me, you're gonna be okay, okay? Jesus is not just concerned with sinlessness and God is not repelled by sin. And the heart of holiness for you and me is Christ-likeness and the heart of God's character is that God doesn't want to be God without us. He doesn't want to be God without his people. Now that's easy for us to think about when we think about Jesus, right? God the Son. So a passage like Philippians 2 makes sense because the Bible says that have this mind that in your, have this mind that, that the attitude that Jesus Christ had and the Bible says that, that Jesus, the Son, considered equality with God not to be held on to. In other words, I don't have to hold on to. I can become a little embryo in that virgin's womb. That's what Jesus said. I don't consider equality. I'm co-equal with God, the Father, but I don't consider equality with God something to be held on to. But the Bible says he became a what? Servant. But he didn't just become a servant. He earns, the Bible says, in becoming a servant, and he becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. And notice this. So that... For that reason, Philippians 2 says, that God exalted him and gave him a name above every other name. You, you need to hear that again. God, Jesus Christ, in his presence, had perfect intimacy with the Father. He turned from that, and he turned to us, and that's what the Father celebrates in the Son. The Father celebrates his Son turning from him and turning to sinners. God stands up in heaven and claps his hands for the son who's willing to turn from his father and turn to us. That's why the father exalts him. The father gives Jesus a name above every other name because he's willing to leave the father and come to sinful people. That's holiness. That's true righteousness. 
Jesus had perfect intimacy with the Father. He turned away from that to us. And God says, that's holiness. Now, you see that in John 1.1 as well. In John 1.1, you remember that poetic start? He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word's with God, and the Word was God. You jump to 14, says the Word became flesh. You get to verse 18 and says, the Word, which is Jesus Christ, it says he's in the Father's embrace. In other words, he's in the bosom of the Father. Now listen to that. That's who the Son is. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. But Jesus tells his disciples, I quoted it yesterday in this funeral in John 14, I'm about to go to the cross, and then I'm going to be resurrected, then I'm going to go to the Father. And I'm going to go to my Father, and then I'm going to come back and get you. Because in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. But if I go to him, I'm going to come back and get you, that you may be where I, where is Jesus? In the embrace of the Father. So the whole gospel story is the story of the son who's eternally one with the father. He takes and turns from that, opening up his life as a vessel or a jar, so to speak, so that we could come in him, so that he would take us back, so that we can share in his intimacy with the father. That's the gospel. He puts us in him and takes us back to the father's chest so that we experience the same intimacy with the Father that Jesus experiences with the Father. That's the gospel. So if God is primarily concerned with not being contaminated by sin, we can't make sense of that. We can't make sense of that gospel story. It's much closer to the truth, and I want you to hear my words. I thought about these long and hard to say that God is attracted to our sin for the sake of overcoming it than to say that God is repelled by it. So holiness, let me give you a new definition, is the energy that draws God to our brokenness to transform it into the embrace that the Son shares with the Father. His holiness actually is attracted to our brokenness. His holiness is actually attracted to our, our, our brokenness and our fragility. And then he grabs us and puts us in him so he can go back and allow us to share the embrace he has with the Father. So your holiness and my holiness has to have the same energy. If my holiness and your holiness doesn't have the same energy, then it's not God's holiness. If I'm holy, listen to me, church, I'm drawn to broken people, not driven away from people. If I'm holy, I'm drawn to a broken culture. I'm not pushed away and repelled by a broken culture. If I'm holy, I'm driven to sinners, not repelled by sinners. I'm attracted to the brokenness of the world, not repelled by the brokenness. Insofar as I hate sinners, I'm self-righteous. Now I have my righteousness and not the righteousness that comes through faith. And the dead giveaway, listen to me, church. I know this is, this, when I was growing up, when an evangelist came and preached one of these messages, he always said to his wife, go start the car, right? Because he's just going to get killed, you know? It's just like, I know this is difficult, but I want you to follow me a minute because this is where we are. And this is the heart of God for our city. Think about this for a moment. The dead giveaway that the righteousness in my life is self-righteousness and not his righteousness is how I respond to the sins of the people around me. How do I respond to their sin? That's a dead giveaway. Remember at the last judgment, I'm talking about the final judgment. What's the difference between the sheep and goats and God separates them? At the heart of the difference is the way the sheep feel about the goats because the sheep are in his pasture, the goats are not. And you remember, go back and read that parable. We're gonna read a lot of them this month. But, but what, do the, what separates the sheep and the goats? It's how the sheep feel about the goats. What are you saying, Craig? Because if you're a sheep in this pasture and Jesus Christ is your shepherd, if you belong to this shepherd, then all you do is think about the lost. And you don't want to be saved without the goats. You don't want to be saved unless the goats get saved. Folks, you see this in Abraham. He says to Sodom and Gomorrah, if 50, will you spare it? If 45, God, will you spare it? If 40, will you spare it? You see this not only in Abraham, you see it in Moses. I don't want to be saved, God, without them. What does Paul say in the book of Romans? I wish I could be accursed and my brothers be saved. You see this in Jesus. I do not want to be saved unless Woodstock is saved. I don't want to be in your presence unless my family comes in your presence. That's holiness. That's true Christ-likeness. If you're going to blot their name out of the book, God, blot my name out of the book. I don't want to be saved if they can't be saved, God. But it's true not only of the Son, it's true of the Father. Now, that's the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Listen to me for a moment. We often... In our simplified ways of telling the gospel, I've been very guilty of it. I just can confess to you. We simplify the gospel 
so much that we set the son against the father. And let me explain to you. We think the son, the father is just and the son's merciful. And so it's like the father's committed to righteousness, but the son's not. He's just committed to compassion and, and salvation. That's heresy. It's because the Father loves us that the Son comes. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Son is for us because the Father is for us. They are both committed to us. They're both committed to loving us. And Paul can explain this any better than Romans 8.32. Look what he says. And listen to this verse. This is so mind-boggling, folks. The Bible says, He who did not spare his own Son, that's the Father, but gave him up. The Father gave the Son up for us all, all. You know what that means? For so many years of my life, I was taught to read Scripture at this pious distance. And we'd, we'd say those things, but we don't really think about that. Do you know what that's saying right there? Listen, look at that. He gave up his own Son for us. You know what that means? If God gave up his own Son for us, that means God would rather not be God than be God without you. He doesn't want to be God if you aren't with him. That's why he sent his son. If this is starting, if you're starting to hear this, you're starting to hear the gospel. Mind-blowing. If this is impinging on you and you're seeing it, then this is where the gospel comes alive in your hearts. And you're no longer repelled by the sins of America. You're drawn to the brokenness of America so that Jesus Christ can overcome and bring his healing touch to America. You're not repelled by sinners. You're drawn to sinners. So think about the son. He gave up his only life for us. Think about the father. He gave up his son for us. In Romans chapter one, by the way, look, look at this again. I want you to say this one thing, and then we're going to Deuteronomy. He says he gave him up, and Paul uses that word gave him up at the beginning of Romans, and he wants the Romans to be shocked at what he's saying. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Because that word gave him up or phrase is used at the beginning of Romans chapter one, and, and, he, and God says he turns people over to their own sin. You remember this? And quite frankly, most times when people talk about holiness, this is the scripture they use. God turns people over to their own sins. Yes, that's true. But the turning over is always more shallow in God's heart than what? Than turning over his own son for those sinners. What are you saying, Craig? He can only, and God does, folks. He, he turns people over to their own sons, but, or sins, but don't, don't miss this. He can only turn me over to my own sins because he's already turned over his son for me in my sins. Now he can turn me over my sins because he's already turned his son over for me in my sins. And I chose to disregard. What are you saying, Craig? The love of God is always deepest. It's always deepest. I was laying in my bed last night with Knox. This question came up. I know we think it's a theologically packed question, but he didn't understand. He said, Dad, how much do you love me? And I said, I said, one billion times eternity. He said, how much does God love me? And I said, one billion times eternity, times eternity, times eternity. He goes, oh, are you serious? He loves me more than you do? And I said, son, I can't even begin to match up with the way he loves you. And as a six-year-old, already the gospel's starting to impinge on his mind. The love of God is deepest. It's deeper, folks. He does not want to be God without you. He gave up his son for you. That's holiness. That's the story of his kingdom. That's why he came to rescue you. This is what his kingdom's all about. And listen, folks. We've talked about God's, I, some of you, I, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking, what do I make of this? Well, maybe you don't. I would say the reason I think we've done this is because we've not only talked about God in ways that are false to the gospel, but we've also talked about him in ways that leave our lives stable. The temptation of all of us, particularly in our nation, is to make God as one who keeps our lives ordered. And most of you in this room, if you're here on a Sunday morning at 930, you have a pretty good grasp on life. What I'm saying is you know kind of how you want your life to go. You're pretty ordered people. And let me tell you something. I didn't realize this until I spent five years in another location serving. When people have ordered lives, it's very easy to make religion a part of that. So you have an ordered life. So what you do is you come in, you go to church, you tithe, you pay your tithes, you read the Bible, you pray. And it becomes a way that you can make your life work. But our God is not there to make your life work. Our God is a living God that's not useful and he won't be an idol. 
You understand this. Make no graven images before you. should have no other gods before me. The first three commandments of the Ten Commandments are essentially God saying, I am not useful to you. I am your God. I'm not an idol. If you don't have plants that are growing, you can go get an idol of fertility. If you don't have a marriage partner, you can go get a marriage idol. If you, if you, need, uh, if you need to fight a battle, go get a war idol. But I am not an idol. In other words, our God, listen to me, church, is not there to serve what we think are our needs. Our God is there to make us what he knows we ought to be be and can be. That's to be like his son, see? And if sinlessness is my goal, then I'm idolizing the characteristic and not the end goal, which is to be like his son. Christ-likeness, to be all he's created to me, to be conformed to the image of his son. So he comes through for us. God always does, but he never comes through on our terms. He is faithful, but he's not predictable. And I wish we understood this. This is why sometimes the greatest blessings in our life are unanswered prayers. Because we pray and we think we know what we need, but God is teaching us that you don't, don't ever think, Craig, that you can see what you think you need, ask me for it, and then I'll do it every time. That will convince you that you are in control of your life, and you're not. If he answered every prayer you thought you had a need, you would be controlling him. He's not useful. He's Lord. He's sovereign. And so God sometimes doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we wanted to be answered. And that is okay because if he answered everything we wanted, we would destroy ourselves. Because we don't know what we really need. He does. He's Lord. He created us in our mother's womb. He knows this, folks. And so listen, holiness is not about not watching R-rated movies. Holiness is not about not associating with sinners. Holiness is about having the heart and the energy of God and living that heart in a broken world until against that brokenness, the healing of God comes. Let me say it another way. Holiness is not safe. Holiness is a crazy, wild, insane adventure. And you know why it's a crazy, wild, insane adventure? It's because that in spite of sin, there is one, capital O, who is not intimidated and not repelled and not sickened, but is capable of being right in the middle of sin without being contaminated by it to transform it because where sin abounds grace abounds. Notice he said, where sin abounds. Where sin abounds. In other words, I'm going to say another shocking thing, but just take it. One of the reasons we don't have depth of much real holiness is that we're not where sin abounds. We're trying to do all that we can to run away from sin, and God says it's only where sin abounds that grace abounds. You don't find grace from running from sin. You find grace from being in the midst of sin and not contaminated by sin. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound so sinlessness in itself gives you no holiness because it sinlessness in itself doesn't give you christ-likeness sinlessness is just self-righteousness it's not the heart of god it's not the heart of jesus now i want to look at this passage as we conclude it's a great it's number 16 we're going to read it's a pretty long stretch of text just stick with me for a few moments but but i want you to read it with me because it is so powerful and i'm just praying that god would so ingrain this story in your heart because it, I think, in, from an Old Testament perspective, is the greatest picture we can find of the grace in God's kingdom and holiness in God's kingdom. And I want you to see this. Number 16, I'm going to begin in verse 1. If you'll follow along with me, the scripture will be on the screen as well. Notice what the scripture says. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and the descendants of Reuben, Dathan and Abiram, and the son of Eliab, and one son of Peleth. Now, this is why many of you never go left of Psalms. Okay, for that very reason right there. Notice this. They became insolent, and they rose up against, the scripture says, Moses. And with them were 250. Everybody say 250. These were elders. These were men, strong, powerful men in the company of Israel. 250 elders rose up, and they had been appointed members of the council, and they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron. And they said to Moses and Aaron, you've gone too far. I want you to listen to this next statement. You ready? The whole nation is holy. It'll, it'll hit you in a minute. They're coming against Moses. They're coming against Aaron. They said the whole nation is holy. Not just the priest, and that's right. They're, they're making a true statement. The whole nation is holy. Look at this. Everyone of them, and the Lord is with them. That's true. 
Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? In other words, he's saying, Moses, you're lording, you're calling over us. Now listen to me. That verse one through three is the heart of Satan's power. To get us to be technically right with a spirit that is estranged. Everything they're saying is right. You say, Craig, what do you mean? God is among the whole people. He's not just among the priests. He's not just with Moses and Aaron. He's with the whole people. And all of God's people are holy. Not just the priests, not just Moses, the prophet. All God's people are holy. They are right, but they couldn't be more wrong. Let me tell you something. You will never be more wrong than when you are right. The most wrong you can be is when you're right with the wrong spirit. When you're right with information, but it's strange from the holiness and the character of Jesus. You're never more wrong than when you're right, but you're wrong. I'm just telling you. So when you are right about something, but you don't have the spirit of Christ, that's Satan. People say, well, I'm just speaking the truth. Well, whenever you use truth to accuse, that's Satan. You understand that, right? Truth is not using deception to accuse. It's using truth to accuse somebody. That's Satan. That's what he does. Oh, I'm just telling the truth. Well, if you're accusing somebody, that's what the Pharisees did. They accused the woman caught in the adultery. And he says, he who has no sin cast the first stone, right? That's Satan. That's the heart of Satan, to accuse with no Christ-like spirit. Now, Jesus spins on Peter in Matthew 16. He says, Peter, get behind me, devil. What? He had just told him that you're the... Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Why? Because Peter was right, but wrong in a more fundamental way. And let me tell you, church, the greatest danger we face in our churches is not from people who are wrong and not from heresy being taught. It's people who are right, but wrong in the wrong way. It's people who know the truth, but the wrong spirited. Greatest danger we face in the church. In other words, the right and the wrong way about the problems in the church. The right and the wrong way about the problems of culture. The right and the wrong way about the culture we live in. When you are right, but your spirit is not in line with the compassion of Christ, you are under the influence of Satan. And Jesus proves it in Matthew 16. And you in that moment are danger to everyone. Listen to me. If you ever get to the place where you think it's possible to have truth without love, you've deceived yourself. And from that place, you will wreak havoc on everything that God is doing in everybody else's life. You cannot have truth without love. There is no ability. If you have truth without love, you're operating like Satan. So when I have truth and I'm not equipped with a Christ-like spirit, I will wreak havoc on people. Let me, let me say another point here because I think this is so powerful. You know, you can never keep God's grace from someone, no matter how bad you treat them. But you can determine the way that grace comes to them. For instance, if a pastor or a spiritual leader abuses a young girl, and they do it in the name of God, they can't keep the grace of God to come to that daughter, but when someone comes and starts becoming Christ to that daughter, guess how the grace of God has to come to them in the, her in the form of healing? And this is what I deal with. You deal with classes and you have somebody saying the same thing over and over and you're like, you've got to get beyond that thing. It's because the grace of God can't move beyond the way they need to receive it. Whatever healing is there. This is so important to learn and understand about the people around us. So catch this. If you abuse people in the name of God, God will still work in the life, but his, life, his work will have to take the shape of healing of the wounds that you've caused. And this is why G James says, let your words be few and be slow to what we say to each other matters. Oh, yes, it does matter. So he goes on. These leaders of Israel are confronting Moses. Now I want you to see this with accusation. Verse 4, I love this response. It's so powerful. Look at this response of Moses. He says in verse 4, Then Moses heard this. He fell face down. Don't you love that? He's being attacked and accused, and his first knee-jerk reaction is to have intercession on the ground for his accusers. They're saying he's too proud, and he gets on his face. Now, he doesn't maintain this. He gets really ticked off in a minute. We'll see this. But at least his first response is that he lays down in front of the Lord, and he starts interceding for them. Now, verse 5, look what he says. When then he said to Korah and all his followers in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. There's that language again. And he will have that person come near him, and the man he chooses will cause to come near him. And what's Moses saying? He's saying in the morning, y'all just keep running your mouth. We'll test it. And whoever let God lets come close to him is the one who is holy. Now, we'll jump down to verse 12 for the sake of time. Then Moses summoned... Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we won't come. What? He said, isn't it enough that you've brought up us out of land, flowing milk and honey? He's talking about Egypt to kill us in the wilderness. And now you want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing milk and honey or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. In other words, we're in the desert. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. 
They are technically right, but they're wrong. Are they in the land flowing with milk and honey? No. They look around. Instead of seeing milk and honey, they see desert, 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 manna, 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 desert, 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 desert. So they're right, but they're, they're wrong. They're technically right with the words, but their spirit is wrong. I hope you're getting this. Just because you are not wrong does not mean you're not wrong. <laughs> Did you hear me? Just because you're not wrong doesn't mean you're not wrong. Doesn't mean you're not wrong. Just because you have chapter and verse does not mean you're an accuser to a person. Because you err, knowing the scriptures and not knowing Jesus. So he goes on in, in verse 15, and look what the scripture says. Then the scripture says, then Moses became very angry. Here's where he gets a little bit different response. and said, Lord, don't accept their offering. I've not taken a donkey from them, nor have I wronged them. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are, are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. And each man to take a censer, put incense on it, 250 censers in all, because there's 250 elders, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each one of them, notice the first day, took his censer, put burning coals and incense, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 19, when Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. Catch, catch the scene. Moses and Aaron are standing next to the, the tabernacle. The 250 leaders are against them with Korah, and then the whole nation gathers. You've got a showdown among showdowns. This is like 1 Kings 18. Moses, Aaron, 250 elders, they're looking battle, battle, wait for wait, and the whole nation's ready to watch what happens, and the Bible says the glory of the Lord appears. Now look what happens. Verse 20. The Lord got his word, and he said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves, that's called holiness, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. I'm about to destroy this whole nation. You ready? All these people rising up against you, Moses, I'm about to swallow them up. But verse 22, but Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, oh God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go about it a different way. Say to the assembly, move away just from these wicked men, Korah, Dor uh, Dathan, and Abiram, get away from their tents. So Moses got up and he went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel and he warned the assembly, get back, move back is the same holiness language from the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything belong to them or you'll be swept away because of all of their sins. Verse 27. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and the little ones at the entrance of their tent. What's happening? He, God says, step away, Moses, because I'm going to destroy all of these people. And he gets on his face before God, and he says, God, for the sin of one, it's not just one, Moses, it's 250. It's not one. These are your elders coming against you. And he gets on his face before God and says, God, are you going to destroy the whole assembly because one man is speaking against me? Moses' heart, even when he's being challenged by the leaders of his people, is to say, Lord, it's not as bad as you think. That is holiness. It's not that bad, Lord. Think if you were in the midst of the battle of your life and your enemies were against you and God came to you and said, hey, I'm about to get rid of all of them. What would your response to mine be like? Why are you talking to me, Lord? Go get busy. Listen, when we work from self-righteousness, we exaggerate the offenses against us. One person can say something wrong about us and we go to our pastor and say 250 half. Because we have self-righteousness. When we have his righteousness, we always promote solidarity and we try to have mercy and grace and compassion on those people. So do you exaggerate when you're wrong to self-righteousness? He goes on. Verse 28, I love this. He says, then Moses said, this is how you'll know what the Lord has sent me to do all these things. And it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, everybody say new. And the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them. And they go down alive into the realm of the dead. Then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Verse 31. As soon as he finished saying all these things, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households. And all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. And they went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they own. The earth closed over them. They perished and were gone from the community. Verse 34. At the cries, all the Israelites took off to their tents shouting 
the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Folks, think about this. The congregation is separated from the elders. It's separated from Moses and Aaron. The ground opens up and takes Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all of their kids and family and swallows them alive. And the ones that were left, which is 250, fire comes out of the altar of God and destroys them in an instant. And everybody runs to their tent saying, it's going to swallow us as well. And Moses says, God will do something new. And if he does something new, you know that the Lord sent me and I'm not sending myself. And then you get done with that. And look at verse 41. I'm almost finished, folks. Don't miss this. Verse 41, the next day, not in a decade, not in two years, the next day, the whole Israelite community rebelled against Aaron and Moses. Here's my point. Even the judgment of God does not destroy sin. Did you just hear what I said? The next day. They grew rebelled and grumbled against Moses. What are you saying, Craig? One tribe after another in the book of Numbers has rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron didn't call themselves this. God did. And they're fed up with it. The consummation of that is number 16 because the last tribe to rebel are the Levites. And the Levites are the holy ones. And they rebel against Moses and now he's had it. He's done. All 12 tribes. And listen, the next morning, God consumes all of them with fire, the ground, and the next morning rebellion starts over again in the camp because even the judgment of God does not destroy sin. Hear, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. There's all kinds of sins in my life and your life, and anytime we find ourselves praying for the judgment of God, it's because we don't understand the nature of God or the nature of holiness. You saying, what are you saying, Craig? Even if fire came from heaven right now and consumed every one of the wicked sinners that we find in our nation, tomorrow morning it would start back over and be multiplied in another generation. Why? Because even the judgment of God does not destroy sin. So if God's judgment doesn't end rebellion, what do you think will happen if I bring my judgment to bear? It won't end sin. What do you think will happen if I judge my classmates? It's not going to end their sin. So he goes on and I finish. Verse 42. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron, turned towards the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent and said, the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly. I'm going to put an end to them at once. Remember, he just said that the day before, didn't he? And Moses this time don't even talk to God. He don't even talk to him. He runs. He gets there and he says, Aaron, Hurry, quickly. Here's what I want you to do. And look what he says. Take your censer, put an incense along with burning coal. Hurry to the assembly. Make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague will start. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started breaking out among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood. You want to know holiness? He stood between the living and the dead. He stood between the living and the dead. He stood between a living church and a dead city. And the plague stopped. That's what the Bible says. What are you saying, Craig? Holiness is willing to stand even against the wrath of God for the people who've wronged you. Holiness is to stand against God's wrath and say, I'll take that. I will stand against that because I want them forgiven. I want them loved. I want them full of mercy. Moses and Aaron are being wronged here. They did not ask for this. They did not call themselves on the backside of a desert. God called them to do this, and now they're being turned against by the very people they're called to do. And God's ready to vindicate Moses. He's ready to completely vindicate Moses. And Moses stands against God for the people. Sounds like a man I know named Jesus Christ who steps in and stands against the wrath of the Father because he wants us saved. He wants mercy for us. He wants compassion for us. Folks, that's holiness. And if we ever could get to that point, we would not able to stay in this building for another few weeks. We would be like magnets to the brokenness around us. To embrace it. Jesus Christ might transform it. So what do you take from this story, the mind of Christ? Come on, Ben. I'm finished. There are three prophets on three mountains outside of three cities. I want to ask which one you are. 
The first prophet is in Jonah. He's outside of Nineveh. He's up on the hillside, and God called him to be there. He's overlooking the city, and God has sent him there to prophesy destruction, speak destruction. And, no, and Jonah says, no, God, I know you. <laughs> in many ways, I know this is gonna sound weird. He's the most Christ-like character in the whole Old Testament because he knew God's heart. I didn't say he liked it. He just knew it. Go, go, go to chapter one. He said, the reason I didn't go to the city when you called me is because I knew you were gonna forgive these people. I don't want them forgiven. What if we were that honest with ourselves? God, I know you want my city forgiven, but I don't really want to. I know you want my enemies forgiven, but I don't really. If you just be honest enough to come before God, I, I respect Jonah here. He says, I don't want them forgiven, God. Even when they do get forgiven, what does he do? He goes into depression, chapter three. Major depression, chapter four. Are you Jonah? Another prophet on another mountain, overlooking another city, his name's Abraham. He's at the terebinth trees, overlooking a plain full of cities. Two of those cities are Sodom and Gomorrah, and God comes to him and says, hey, let's do some lunch. He says, yes, Lord. They start doing some lunch. God says, what do you think about me killing all that city with fire and brimstone? And he gets a response because there's a nephew there named Lot. And what does Abraham say? He doesn't talk about God's judgment. Ah, Sodom. Let me ask you a question. Think about our day and the ways in which the church of Jesus Christ in our churches, at lunch, in private conversations, in Twitter and Facebook, the way we think about Sodom. Is it like Abram? Who says, Lord, if for 50 will you spare? If for 45? By the way, go back and read that tonight. He never stops negotiating with God. God just walks away. He's trying to get him down to one, I think. It never ends. If just 45, 40. Why? Because that's holiness. There's another prophet. He's the greatest prophet of all. He's outside of a city called Jerusalem. He's on a mountain called Golgotha. He has no gun on him. Modern day politic statement there. He has the right to call down angels from heaven and rescue him. He's being beaten and mocked and accused. And what does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. All of us are prophets on top of mountains overlooking cities. And we either pray like Jesus or we pray like Jonah. I just sense the Lord telling me this week, if we could get a church. See, it's the things that, listen, listen, listen. It's not the prayers you pray when you think somebody's hearing you. I'm talking about the uncontrolled prayers. If you were before God and just there not thinking about it, what would be the uncontrolled prayer of your heart? Would it be, Father, forgive my city. Don't save, my, don't save me without saving my city. Or would it be, Jonah, don't forgive them. And see, I think it's that, listen, oh my goodness, listen. I think it's that intangible that we can't see that God honors and causes growth and causes our church to move forward and causes the mission because he knows our hearts. He knows not what our words are saying, but our uncontrolled hearts that's saying, I'm overlooking Dallas. I'm overlooking Ackworth. I'm overlooking Woodstock. I'm overlooking Scan. And God, don't save. Don't save me without saving them. God, don't save me without saving my family. And God looks at that and says, hey, finally I found somebody who's like my son. Finally somebody's becoming Christ-like. Finally somebody's full of compassion and mercy and grace. When you see your neighbors and your enemies, what's happening right here? Because if it's holiness, it'll be God, I don't want to be saved without them. If it's not that, then we got to ask God to rebaptize us, renew us. If you're Holy, you say, if for 50, if for 45, if for 40. Holiness is, it's just one God. It's not 250, it's just one. And God calls us to that holiness. And the last thing our world needs is a group of people that are trying to be sinless and running from them. The last thing our world needs is a people who think that God wants to be repelled by them. I was at youth camp this week. And on the final night, young lady came to me of many notes I received. This is one I want to read to you. 16-year-old girl, dear Pastor Craig, I'm writing this because if I knew I tried to tell you in person, the tears would move and make the story so hard to understand. I wouldn't be able to speak to you. But I know the Lord wants me to tell you this. A week ago, just seven days ago, I was strung out on drugs and I was growing up in church and I come from a beautiful family. 
no one in my life knows about this addiction. The devil had a very strong hold on me recently. It wasn't until tonight the words God gave you that it made sense to me what the enemy was doing. I realized he did exactly what you said he does, and I'm proud to say that I've started praying. The devil never gets a hold of me like that again. I will not fall for his games anymore, and the Lord will be there when times get tough. But I've rerouted myself with Jesus Christ. I thank you that when I've come to talk to you this week, you've not been pushed away from me. But God led you to share with me. Because of his words through you, I'm now recovering hardcore drug addict. She lives in Cobb County, which most is an upper end income area. And if you've watched the news, you know that hardcore drugs in Cobb County is rampant. And I said when she handed me that note, dear Jesus, let Dwelling Place Church reach every one of them. Let us come after every one of them. Let us open up our arms and open up our lives and receive them. That they might see the grace and the forgiveness and the transformation you long to bring. The world does not need us to push them away. The world needs us to open up our arms and embrace them. That they might share the embrace that we have with the Father. That's holiness. Again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.